Hello, friends. How's it going? My name's Matt Barr. You're listening to the Look Inside Always Action Sports podcast. It's the show where I try and uncover the most interesting stories in action sports and other related endeavours. Thanks for listening. Hope you enjoy this episode. If you're a new listener, welcome. Hope you enjoy it. So we're back in lifer territory this week, which regular listeners will know is my little phrase for when I interview somebody who might not have the profile of some of my more famous guests, but who nevertheless has dedicated their life to the culture in the same way, and in many cases have had a similar influence on the way we experience and perceive these activities, which, after all, are why I'm doing this and you're listening. And that is definitely the case with Action Sports agent and business coach Sue Izzo. Now, let me say up front, that although we obviously cover Sue's career and path through the action sports industry, she founded the Mosaic Agency and helped steer the career of the likes of Danny Davis, Keir Dillon and Sofia Milanovic. I hope that's how you say it. This open, honest and moving conversation is really about life itself. Now, in Sue's case, this has meant facing episodes of debilitating depression, numerous suicide attempts, a cancer diagnosis and various tragic and challenging professional crises yet still finding the strength to come out the other side as the person she is today so that's what this episode is about it's about the biggest questions and challenges of all which at some point we're all inevitably going to have to face and how we find the strength to deal with them for sue it's an ultimately uplifting story about the way she's coped with these episodes and her determination to pass on what she's learned through her work and conversations like this is very, very admirable indeed, I would say. This is powerful, thought-provoking stuff. Um, you know, I'm going to be honest, whenever I um, put an interview up with somebody who perhaps doesn't have a huge profile, and that's very fair to say about Sue, it doesn't get the love that it should do. I really, really implore you, if you're just checking this one out, out of interest to listen to this one. It gave me a lot of food for thought and I should give you some advance warning. In this conversation, myself and Sue converse pretty frankly about mental health, depression and suicide. So just a heads up before you get stuck into the episode. I'll be back at the end. In the meantime, here's me and Sue. Rebirth. Enjoy. How's your day going so far? It's good. I've had a few consulting clients this morning. And so just, uh, you know, plugging along, help, you know, business owners kind of with their marketing and pretty much, I do the same thing for business owners now that I did with athletes, which is just pretty much give them a kick in the ass, you know, yeah, and a hug, as I say, um, and just help them kind of figure out how to grow their businesses and through marketing and brand positioning and processes and all that stuff and a lot of mindset stuff too <laughs> right right okay so is that like a presumably that's a pretty transferable skill set then yeah when I um when I sold mosaic back in I sold the majority of mosaic back in 2015 and um I got this crazy job uh for well it wasn't a crazy job at all it was a uh, friend of mine in Australia that had a marketing education company uh, for small business owners. And they had asked me to bring their company to the States. And so that was uh, taking small business owners and teaching them in like a 11 month mastermind. Um, and uh, through that, it was really, yeah, it was transferable because everything that I loved about sports management, one of the big parts I loved about it was building the athlete brands and building their businesses. 
outside of sponsorship um, and figuring out what their entrepreneurial passions were. So it was, um, it was really fun to kind of just take all everything that I loved about that and then just switching it over to business owners. Yeah. I mean, so there's quite so much we can talk about because I've been, yeah. I've been doing, I've been obviously researching and yeah, like you've kind of already outlined it, but your, your career is in sort of almost like two parts, isn't it? You've got the, you've got the athlete management part, you've got mosaic yeah. and that part of the story. And then, and then after afterwards, what you're doing now and, and also it'd be great to talk about what you're doing with Cersei as well. Yep. Um, mm-hmm. But what I'd actually like to start with, if that's all right, is sure. um, yeah. I, I noticed you had a pretty significant anniversary recently. Um, I yeah which was five years um of remission right yes five years cancer free yeah so I would I wondered if you'd be um you know if you'd be open to talking about that experience yeah absolutely I'm a total open book about that um yeah when I was um oh, I don't know if you want me to start just well I'm more I, well the first question I had actually was like how sure. you know the post that you wrote was really moving and it was really it was really I'm, I'm actually I actually noted a little bit because it was um you said I realize that I'm at a time of change in my life may I have the courage faith in the unknown and belief in myself to realize what is next for me and it kind of felt like when I was reading that that you know obviously you've got the physical um aspect of the of a diagnosis like that and 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 the treatment and all that but it, it it feels like I might be doing two and two equals five here a little bit but like it just feels like it it was obviously a mentally transformative experience for you as well and this and this milestone see you know kind of underlying that is that is that a fair thing to sort of say there yeah absolutely I mean I had you know I had this incredible career and um I had that opportunity, like I mentioned earlier to you know sell the majority stake of my company in 2015 to Octagon and I was, you know, at, at that point, you know, after three Olympics and, you know, representing some of the world's best athletes, action sports athletes, I was like, I need to slow down. You know, it was just so much, you know, the thing about other agents, what they were really lucky with is that, you know, they worked for big agencies. I owned yeah. the agency, you know, and I was a female. So it was like, it was really hard. Um, and so when that opportunity arose to sell, I was like, okay, this is my chance to you know, slow down and just focus on a couple athletes and, you know, not even five months into doing that deal. Um, I was laying in bed one night and it was really random. I just put my hand under my armpit. It wasn't even like on my breast. It was under my armpit. And I was like, this is really weird. Like, what's that? And I brought it up to my doctor and he said to me, listen, you're young, you're 41 years old, you have no family history of breast cancer. Um, It's probably nothing, you know, come back in six months. And I did. And I got another I got a mammogram again, and it came back as suspicious. And the doctor was like, you know, oh, it's, you know, this is normal to come back suspicious. And so I just, I pushed him and I said, I want a biopsy. And I was on the biopsy table. And the surgeon said to me, I've done this a million times. I could tell you right now, this is not breast cancer. All right, cool. It's not breast cancer, you know. And then uh, I went to get the results and it was stage two triple positive breast cancer. Wow. And yeah, so it was a wow moment. Um, you know, I've been impacted by cancer in my life where it was just kind of in my mind, whether it was morbid or not, I was kind of like, it's a it was a when in my mind, not an if. Um, so I, I dealt with I re- it kind of. Really? Sorry. sorry. That's interesting. Yeah. So that was, 
And the reason I say that is because I have a similar thing in my family as well. Like, so there's a, there's a history in my family of female breast cancer, basically. And mm-hmm. I, my, me and my mum have talked about that a little bit. And my mum yeah. has a similar kind of mindset. So it's really interesting mm-hmm. to hear you say that. So that was something that you'd almost prepared for in a way. Yeah, it's weird. I had this long history of of helping people with cancer pass over and taking care of them from like in college, one of my dearest guy friends had a really rare spinal cancer and he was 19 and I took care of him in college to, you know, my, my, one of my first boyfriend's moms to my cousin, not even, you know, six months earlier, um, I helped her pass over. Um, so when it, when I got the diagnosis, it was like, all right, here's, I guess my, my turn. And I was like, you know, typical, high functioning depressed person. I'm like, well, okay, what's my checklist? What's my work back schedule on this? What do we got to do? You know, um, I think the, one of the biggest things that was very difficult for me was at the time I was representing Danny Davis and he was the one athlete that I kept, you know, stayed with after I sold the majority stake of my company. And I'll never forget going to, uh, to Utah and sitting down with his mom and him and, and telling them, you know, and I was totally prepared for, you know, and I told him, I'm like, listen, I have to deal with this. So if you need to get another agent, you know, I, I get it. You know, it was a pinnacle time in his career and, um, you know, typical Danny style, him and his mom were like, no, like whatever we can do for you. Um, so it was a year of, uh, chemo and lumpectomy and 33 rounds of radiation. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And, but, but a good result in the end, like you went, yeah. to, you went into remission. Super fortunate, super fortunate. Yeah. I was really lucky that I had a, though an aggressive cancer, it was a cancer that they had a really good treatment plan for, um, with a lot of success. And so, um, yeah, five years, five years and, but it definitely, you know, it puts a lot in perspective. Um, and I think after going through that treatment, um, I couldn't go back to, the way my life used to be. And, and that somewhat included sports management. I'm interested in the, in this kind of premonition, premonitory thing we just talked about, because mm-hmm. it's kind of a tendency of recognizing myself a little bit, you know, it's almost like it's, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a fatalism, isn't it? You know, it's like, uh, it's, it's, it's an almost like, cause I kind of have a similar thing, you know, not, not to be like, Hey, let's talk about me. But like, um, where I, I almost have this trait where I think, well, if I imagine the worst thing, then it can, I'm sure you understand what I'm saying. Like, you know, it's almost like it's a tempt fate and almost like mentally prepare yourself in a way. Very fatalistic. Is that, is that a trait that you've, that you've always had? Well, it's, here's the thing. Um, I've dealt with lifelong depression since I was a young child and I had attempted suicide when I was 19, 35, and I was on the verge again at 39. So I never thought I was going to live to see 40 in the first place. So it was kind of a huge, it was, it was kind of a funny thing to me when I had battled all of this. And even during my sports management career, you know, and having an incredible career. And I finally like wrestled my demons with sports, I mean, with sports management, with mental health and made it to 40. And I was like, nothing's going to stop me, you know, from this point out. And then not even a year later, I get diagnosed with cancer. And I was literally, when I got the diagnosis, I started laughing. I'm like, oh my God, my higher power is just like 
yeah, sure. You know, laughing at me, like you tried to take your life all these years. Now I'm going to make you fight for it. So it was such a interesting twist of fate um, for me. And I think life prepared me for that battle in a huge way in, in, in really with the, with the mental health stuff, because it was like, Oh, hell no. Like I did not come this far to have this take me down, you know? So, yeah. um, I was ready. I was ready for that fight. Yeah. I, I think the reason I'm homing in on that, that a little, that comment that you made a little bit is because I kind of do recognize it as a, you know, you described yourself pretty authoritatively as a high functioning depressed, depressed person. I think you said, mm-hmm. um, yep. and I kind of almost, that fatalistic thing that I'm talking about, like I kind of recognize it as almost like a coping mechanism and that, that people that suffer from depression kind of have, isn't it? You know, it's almost like if I think about this, then I can, I can prepare for the worst and I can, I can almost preempt it in some way. It's definitely a coping mechanism that, that, pe- that, that people use to sort of mitigate the future struggles that they expect because when you're depressed obviously it's cyclical it can be and you know you mm-hmm. you, you uh, when you've had the experience of it that you've had obviously i imagine when you're in the thick of that you're you're, you're waiting for the episode you know another episode is coming so there's a lot of attempting to mitigate that isn't there is it was do you think that that perhaps might be where that came from um yeah i mean parts of it yeah for certain i mean i think you know, with the mental health stuff, I think that was a huge part of learning to actually just like myself, right? You know, I mean, there's chemical imbalance stuff, part of it, but then there was also just a self-loathing part of it. And I think when you finally get to that place of like, wow, you know, I really do, I am worthy to live and I am, you know, I do love myself and I do care about my life and my life is worth living. um, And I'm not this huge piece of shit. Then when you get a diagnosis like cancer you're kind of like oh no 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 i just got to the good part like no yeah. i'm not doing this but um i think with cancer you know i really saw it all not only before i was ever diagnosed but also when i was in you know the infusion room getting chemo and you're taking a look around and you are seeing literally every single walk of life you know it doesn't discriminate same with mental mental illness it doesn't discriminate so you know, you really just have a, an observation of, of life and humanity of, you know, we're all really just trying to do the best we can. And, um, you know, just kind of that appreciation. I mean, there, I, every morning that I wake up, I mean, no matter how tough life can be every morning, the first thing I do is I thank my higher power for that for a day. Like it's, I didn't do that 20 years ago. No way. I was always just getting up to drink coffee to go, go to work. Um, but I don't, I don't lose sight of that. Um, now, or at least I try not to. And I think, I think like to your, to your point about, you know, the fatalistic it's, I think as humans, we're like, and I don't know if it's a good thing or not, you know, that we're like trying to arm ourselves, like put the armor on for the battle, right? It's a game face, isn't it? Yeah. It, yeah. It's like, I'm, I, I got this, like no matter what comes my way. And that was a part of like almost sports management, why I got out of it, because I was so tired of carrying that heavy armor of like the battle. Yeah. So, yeah, it's a coping mechanism, isn't it? To, to Mm -hmm. face the world really. And to, but it isn't often the reality of who you are and what's actually going on beneath that, you know, (laughs) exterior, let's say, um, was that, it's sorry, go on. No, I was going to say it's, it's kind of like what people say. It's like life isn't happening to me. It's happening for me. Yeah. And I think that was a part of the cancer thing, just like everything else in my life. It's like what I've been through is just, it's been my 
my, no matter how painful it's been the gift for me to be able to help other people now, you know, that's kind of how I, how I see things. Was there a moment when you realized, cause you know, you've described the lifelong struggle here, haven't you really with the, with, with mental yeah. health. Um, mm -hmm. was there a moment when you realized that approach, that coping mechanism wasn't serving you and you had to, you had to make a change? Oh <laughs> yeah. A hundred percent. I, um, you know, I, like I said, I, I, my depression started young. I mean, very young, you know, 11, 10, 11. Um, and so it almost became, it was interesting being depressed and my default of wanting to die. I was so comfortable with, like I lived in that space for so long that that was my natural default. And then, um, when I was 35, my depression really came to a head. Um, and I did an outpatient program here in San Diego for six weeks, um, after I had attempted suicide. And this is when mosaic was in full swing. I mean, I had the roster of rosters and everything was going really well in business. Um, and, uh, I did an outpatient program for the first time then. And that was the first time I kind of saw people like me for the first time. I felt like I was really alone in depression until that moment. Um, and to see different walks of life. And then when I was 39, I was on the verge again of, of, you know, attempting, and I decided to check myself into a treatment center, um, inpatient. And I went to this place in Nunnally, Tennessee, and that was a really humbling experience. But what happened was in that time of doing that, like intense work and working through my traumas and learning to love myself again, um, and value life was this shift happened where the, the go-to default of dying or being depressed switched and it became very uncomfortable for me to be in that state. So now when that happens, if it, you know, when I start feeling depressed, I'm like, Oh God, no. Like where before it was like a warm, cozy blanket. Like this is my safe space. Like this is where I live. This is where I go to. And now it's like, if that ever, when that creeps in, I'm like, this is the worst feeling in the world. I have to get out of this as fast as I can, you know, and use all my tools. So it is an interesting shift um, when you start doing the work and you, and you switch over and, you know, you're able to go to the other side of that. Do you mind if I ask how you found the strength to, to firstly realize that and then accomplish that? Because I think the realization is obviously one thing, um, but to then actually act, you know, to actually act upon that in the way that you've obviously done so successfully and, and, I'll go, I've got another question about this, the, the kind of state that you describe afterwards, but yeah. How, how did you sure. get the strength to, to, to make that change? Uh, it wasn't easy. Um, it wasn't easy at all. I think, like I said, the first step was when I, when I attempted suicide the first time in my adult life, um, I, it was a bad day. I mean, I'll never forget it sitting in my office and, and I received a phone call that was just some bad news. And I hung up the phone and all my employees are there. And I just looked at them and I'm like, I'll be back. And I like, just, I'm like, I'm just going to run home. I'll be back. And, uh, went home and just walked to the medicine cabinet and like took everything, you know, that I could. And, um, I was very lucky that Kier Dillon, who was my first client and one of my dearest friends, um, happened to call me in the middle of it. And I was so out of it 
and he knew something was wrong and, um, you know, came and like, you know, broke in and ambulance and all that stuff. And in that process, like I said, the first step was realizing I wasn't alone. And that was a big part of that outpatient, um, 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 treatment place I went to because, you know, being an agent, you know, I built this company from nothing at, you know, starting in 1999. And it was like, we talked about the coat of armor. Like I was constantly, you know, all my, my self-worth was all based on the outcomes and my achievements. So if I signed that athlete, the athlete won, I got that deal. Like then I was worthy. Right. So like I started this terrible cycle of I'll be happy when I'll be happy when I get this, I'll be worthy when I get this. Right. And then burying myself because I was comparing my insides to others outsides with like, Oh, Cersei got that deal or that athlete or Steve Astafin or this. And so like, then I would bury myself. I'm not good enough. They're better than me. You know, always afraid of athletes leaving. Like it was a terrible, terrible cycle. My point in this is that my, my whole worth and identity was tied into one thing, very similar to athletes when athletes are tied into their wins. Right. So it's like when I'm winning, everybody loves me. Right. Like it's amazing. So step one was kind of identifying that and being like, wait a minute, I don't even know what makes me happy anymore. I don't even know who Sue Izzo is outside of mosaic. So that was like, you know, and, and I hate myself so much, but why, you know? And so it was that process of, of first realizing I wasn't alone, that there were so many people just like me out there, but like, because I worked in this world where I had to be this bravado agent and, you know, hardcore gnarly, um, I couldn't show any weakness or vulnerability. I couldn't share what I was going, going on and what was going on with me, except with my closest friends that were outside of the industry. And then to be in a room with people that were bankers, housewives, executives, you know, teenagers, and everybody having their me too story and a different type of me too story. And you're like, holy shit. Like people are suffering just like me and they're functioning in like two. So that was huge. Then it was, you know, what am I, my self-worth and how am I, you know, what's this crazy ass criteria that I'm doing? Um, And then it was, what are the traumas, right? Like we talk about like big traumas and little traumas, your big T's and little T's. So what was the stuff that happened, you know, as a kid and throughout my life that were these tiny cuts that were just chipping away at me that I was running from. Because when you're an agent and living the life that we did in action sports, it was so easy to just get on a plane and go to the next event and be at the next party and the next, you know, so it's like, and then you're just kind of burying it. But then all of a sudden these, these mountains happen, right? When one thing goes wrong, you just start stacking all the negatives that happen. So then you're buried. So it was like, the unfolding of all of that, like the whole peeling away of the onion and being like, holy shit, this layer, this layer, this layer, this layer, and giving myself the time and permission to just work on that instead of going to the next event or worried about the next accolade, you know? So that was kind of the beginning of, you know, the process of doing the work. Well, and what did you learn? Um, oh God. Uh, I, you know, the, the thing that I learned, which was, I don't know why no one ever taught me this one, um, was self-compassion. 
I had no idea you were supposed to be nice to yourself. That's so funny. I've never, that's the second time I've heard that phrase today. And I have never really heard it before, to be honest. Um, yeah. And, and, and even yeah. so when I had this conversation, I, I, I was like, I don't even know if I know what that is. <laughs> <laughs> Which is probably quite a revealing comment, to be honest. Um, and, no, it's a great, I mean, listen, it's, it's something that I think people are more attuned to today and is talk about it now, you know, now more than ever. And that's just the fact of like, like the whole be happy now, be where your feet are, you know, be proud of, you know, what you've achieved. I always harp on celebrating the small wins, mm. you know, not these big things. It's like, you know, I, when I was at my worst, my psychiatrist at the time said to me, all I want you to do is make your bed and uh, today. And I was like, I just paid you 150 bucks for you to tell me to make my bed. Like, are you freaking kidding me here? <laughs> and, you know, his whole, whole thing was like, it's there's a beginning, middle and end task. And if you start with a beginning, middle and end task that you complete, then that's going to build, help you build the confidence to move on to bigger tasks. And that's where I was at that time. So that's why I harp on people like you must celebrate every single day. Like, you know, like, yes, I wrote a rat email. Cool. That's the level of it. Awesome. You did it. You know, did you make someone smile? Amazing. You won today. Like you opened the door for someone and were kind to a stranger killer. Like we, we have to, we have to learn to be kind to ourselves. And because we are in this crazy ass world with social media of like, I'm the influence of this and I have this many likes and that it's just not real. You know, no. it's just not real. And also the other thing I was going to say about your particular situation as well is like to achieve what you achieved with Mosaic, like takes such drive, such ambition, such, you know, you've already alluded to how competitive the environment is, the, 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 the industry is the, the, the part of the industry you were particularly in at that point as well, because that was a nascent part of the industry, wasn't it? Essentially like being an agent to these athletes so that that was, that was developing at this point. So you, you were essentially with the people that you mentioned, like Steve Cersei, and I'm sure there are others that, yep. that we, we could mm -hmm. talk about, you know, essentially you guys were kind of pioneering this in the field and to do that takes traits that probably aren't that complimentary for self-examination at that, at that point, shall, <laughs> shall, shall, shall we say? Yes. Yeah. I mean, I, here's the thing. I, um, I, you know, I felt that, yeah, I'm a hundred percent Italian, uh, you know, I'm a Leo. So like, there is this like, you know, toughness to me, I guess. Um, but I always tried to conduct myself out of love, especially with my clients, you know, and I think that, um, but you had to develop that coat of armor, you know, at, in my business because it was, it was tough. It was very competitive. I mean, I did have good relationships with everyone, but there was a lot of shit talking, you know, um, there's no way not to take things personal. Um, there was a lot of shit that went down in my career. You know, I lost a lot of, I mean, I lost Jeffy Anderson. He died. Craig Kelly was one of my best friends. Danny kept getting injured. Kevin got injured, you know? So you're like, there was shit that happened that, um, you're just kind of like picking yourself up again a lot. Right. And then you're dealing with a competitive nature of people talking to your athletes. I can do better than them. Da, da, da. Um, so that was, it was a constant coat of armor that I, that I had to wear. And I can't say that that was something that I chose or wanted to like in yeah. hindsight, like I said, I really wanted to put that down in the end because sure. I didn't want to li live a life like that anymore. So when you said that, um, 
I think you said earlier that when you you got to a point when you felt like you'd understood yourself enough to to be able to move from the scenario that you described the 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 scenario of depression let's say that you described and you mm-hmm. said that you kind of got to the point where you you could break that 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 cycle but you also said um and i realized that i couldn't basically continue with the same job like um so did mm-hmm. you get did you did you get to the realization that if you were gonna safeguard your mental health you actually just couldn't do that role anymore as it was because the two didn't really go hand in hand was that was that a kind of was was that a tandem understanding if you like well here's the thing i was in i had been in it for over 18 years at that point you know yeah. so and like i said it'd be different if i was just an agent working for a company collecting a check yeah um, it's your it's your I, baby wasn't it it was your your it, your yeah, it was. It was my baby. And it was my, like I said, my identity for a long time. And, and, and you know, I didn't get out of it just because of my mental health. I mean, I saw also the writing on the wall with kind of the deals drying up for, you know, the three different levels of athletes I kind of represented. And I started seeing things where I was like, you know what, timing also. Um, but I also knew at that point, I think more importantly was um, my life was my athletes and their happiness and helping them achieve their dreams. And they didn't ask me to do that. I did that. That was how I operated and that was who I was. But I came to the realization of how unhealthy that was for me. Um, so that was the bigger kind of moment where I, where it was like, okay, I think I need to put myself first um, for the first time. And it wasn't, like I said, it wasn't anything that they did. It was, it was more, okay, I've, I've done 18 years of this. And so for me to, to give myself some time and space, I, I'm just gonna, <laughs> you know, drift away <laughs> right now. Yeah. <laughs> right yeah, after yeah. the sunset. <laughs> yeah. And so was this the point that you sold the company? Yeah. So it was, I, Peter Carlisle was a, a dear friend and mentor to me um, from Octagon for years. We had talked back in, right before, actually, right before Kevin Pierce got injured. In 2009, he had approached me about buying my company and my ego got in the way and I didn't do the deal. And not even like 15, 30 days later, Kevin had his accident. And then 10 days after that, Danny drove his ATV into a fence and almost was paralyzed. So uh, that was some interesting timing. So I didn't sell then. And then, like I said, I was, you know, realizing the, just the timing of my life and, and, and everything. And so when the opportunity, Peter and I started talking, they needed a surf program and I had a solid one at the time. And, and I knew that I wanted to, you know, st- still work with Danny and, and continue with that. And, um, you know, we merged, merged the two companies in 15, 2015. Right. Yeah. So how, how did you get into that very distinct, um, role? Cause as I, as I said, you know, like, especially for a woman, it wasn't, it wasn't the obvious avenue at that point, you know, very, very male, very macho industry. Um, and, and then when you get into the agent side, I mean, that, that to the, to a ridiculous degree, really. So, um, yes. what was your way into it? Sure. So, um, I went to undergrad in Vermont and, um, my first boyfriend, his name was Randy Gaetano and Randy was a snowboarder for Burton. I remember and Randy. I, yep. Good old Randy, Randy Gaetano. Yeah. Yep. 
and I always, the Ouija board, I always um, give credit to Randy or the twin board, twins. Um, I always give credit to him because he really is the reason what, how I ended up in this. And so I didn't know anything about snowboarding. I was from Connecticut. I was a tennis player. Um, and then dating Randy, I got immersed into the world of Burton. And I started working at Burton my sophomore year of college, um, pretty much to get back at him because we broke up and he was sponsored by them. And I just was at a vindictive Italian. So um, <laughs> I started Hello. working there. Yeah. Remember me. <laughs> yeah. Hi. So, uh, yeah, I started working in the shop and uh, learned, you know, I was always. That's, that's like, really funny. Yeah. And then I just started working my way in the company and. I was just attracted to the marketing department. You know, I always got in trouble for like leaving the front desk when I was the receptionist to go back there and hang out and the athletes and I love sales and marketing. And so when I, after graduating college, um, had a random job doing youth market research for a company where I drove an RV around the country uh, for eight months, talking to kids about trends and the companies that put us on the road was BMG Music and Vans and Jones Soda. And I'd have to go back to Wall Street and be like, hey, you know, they're like, how do we get these kids? It's like, oh, you have to line with extreme sports athletes, you know? And then I started calling friends that I knew like snowboarders and connecting deals. And then there was an agent in that company that said, you know, this is like being a sports agent. And he represented Andy McDonald at the time, the skateboarder. Yeah. And so after my youth market research job ended, uh, he took me under his wing for a few months and just said, okay, this is what it's like to be an agent, to be a sports agent. And so him and another attorney, just said to me, they're like, you should do this. And they're like, we're not growing our company, but you should do this. And I was 25 years old and went into my fifth grade bedroom at my parents' house. And I called Abe Teeter first and he didn't pick up the phone. And the second person I called was Kier Dillon and Kier answered. And I said, would you let me try to get you deals? And so in June of 1999, and so Kier was my first client. And then uh, I signed Anne Malin Kongsgaard second. And it was all self-taught. It was all just reading and figuring it out. I was going to say, I was going to say, because, you know, like in, in, in action sports, obviously is such a strong entrepreneurial streak, like where everybody just always made it up, especially in the eighties and nineties. Yeah. Um, so yeah, literally I'm going to do this. Here's the kernel of an idea. You know, obviously you have the contacts. So how on earth did you get the confidence to do that? Like to, to, to just be like, right, I'm going to do this. Cause you know, 99 K was, he was metaphorically and literally flying, wasn't he? So big, yep, big, yeah. big decision for him, you know, to say, yeah, I'm going to trust you to do this. And so, so oh. same as, same as AMK, you know, she was, that was her heyday, wasn't it as well? So. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was really funny. I mean, I, I had to go down to Pennsylvania and like go talk to Kier's dad and Kier's dad was no joke. I mean, he served in the Vietnam war. He had, <laughs> I think he'd been incarcerated and I had to like, here I was this, little white girl from Connecticut going down there in my Honda CRV being like, okay, I got to pitch myself to, you know, represent your son. And I don't know what the hell I was doing. Um, but I was super passionate. And then, you know, kind of with the going out there, like I, I just had this, I always say I'm the most insecure, confident person I know. Like I would just get on the phone and I, you know, just lie. I'd be like, hi, this is Susan Izzo from the global sports management company, Mosaic Sports Management. We represent world-renowned athletes. It's like, I'm in my fifth grade bedroom with Kier Dillon, you know? like That's so great. I love that. That's brilliant. And I just, at the time, there was no LinkedIn or anything of that no. nature. So to me, it was, you know, and this is part of like me being a writer and loving research was 
I was like, okay, well, if I look at a press release, you know, they, they always say like the email address of the PR person. And so then I would like Google at the time, well, it wasn't Google, but I'd go on AOL and uh, with my dial up and look for like marketing director. And then I would take the, the kind of the, um, the PR email address and plug in the marketing director's email name. Right. And then just send an email being like, Oh, this is who I am. Da, 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 da. You know? And that's how I started in terms of reaching out to people because it was no the, cla- the classic blag just yeah. absolute like yeah. the old just the old school blag i so recognize what you're talking about uh, like when yeah. i began my career as a journalist i just did the same thing just used totally. to go through websites yeah. magazines yeah. find addresses find phone numbers yeah and just and just yeah. bullshit basically yeah. like i don't think people you really even know what a masthead is anymore you know what i no. mean like yes yeah 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 <laughs> But yeah, same same thing. I'll I'll just go to that guy. Like, hey, yeah. how's it going? All right, you know. Totally. I read a book early on called uh, Robert's Rules, which was about a boxing agent and how he started his company. And one of the things that I learned, you know, I, I learned about being personable through my dad. My dad's a you know big talker, and so. But one of the things Robert in Robert's Rules, what he did was he back. It was really back in the day. He would get an index card, and every contact he made, he would write down like the person's name, birthday, their wife's name, their wife's birthday, the kids' birthdays, like all this stuff. So that started me off really early on of being like, okay, I cannot compete with big agents. Like I yeah. just can't, I, I don't have the money. So how can I beat them or how can I you know, get a leg up? And I knew that that was through personal relationships and standing out. So I would do very different things to make sure I was always nurturing relationships, always being personable, handwritten cards, um, or doing funny things like, you know, like my, my infamous story with Bob McKnight, you know, like Bob, I met him really early on and he was super generous. And like, I showed up to our first meeting with like a pot of marinara sauce that I made for him. And he was kind of just like looking at me and I'm like, listen, I can't get you Lakers tickets. I can't take you out to dinner. I don't even have a hundred dollars in my bank account, but I can cook you pasta, you know? And like, it's always like a laugh with us. Like, you know, and- yeah yeah that's great though but that's like making it it just it's such a good lesson isn't it because ultimately at the end of the day it's about relationships it's about you know and and you said it's about being nice it just goes mm-hmm. so far doesn't it you know like yeah. and 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 people remember it and you could have you can have all the you know, you can you can have all the kind of resources in the world, and you can and you can have all the kind of experience in the world. But if you if you're a dick, you know, totally. like pe- totally. people remember it, don't they? So like you can turn those things. I think when people try and get into the industry as well, and people people that are inexperienced, or whatever, and they're like, "How the fuck do you get into this game? Like, what is the deal? Like, you know, they kind of overthink it a bit. I often because I yeah. you, you know it's probably the same for you. Like, I get approached a lot from people that are like you know how do I do what you do essentially sort of thing or mm-hmm. or whatever and it's it's not actually that complicated is it it's like be good at something which is obviously the tricky bit like a bit or mm-hmm. not even be good at something have something to offer let's 100%. just put it let's just put it that simply yeah. and then offer it in a way that people will remember you and 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 that kind of adds you know to oh. the to adds value to the situation whether it's by being nice to somebody, make them some pasta sauce, whatever yep. it is. It's kind of that simple, really, isn't it? And that's it how it is. starts. And that's how you grow it, isn't it? You know, mm-hmm. 
Yep. And it was, it was nerve wracking. I mean, remember I worked in the shop and then was the receptionist at Burton. And then all of a sudden I'm negotiating Kier's contract. So there were a lot that of strikes bit, against me. That bit's trickier. Yeah. Yeah. That got a little tricky, but I was very fortunate to have an attorney who guided me and taught me a lot about contracts, um, which I'm a, I love contracts. Like it's a weird thing how much I love. I really probably should have been a lawyer. Um, but um, so that was like a learning curve. Right. And then learning again, because, you know, I had a reputation of, oh, Sue with the big mouth, you know, and emotional and was our receptionist, you know, so there was a lot stacked against me. Um, but once you figure out kind of where, how people put you in a box, um, and then you start understanding people's egos, um, you know, where they're coming from. Um, I think Burton was the hardest company to negotiate with because there was so much history where like, negotiating with like the Quicksilvers or Pepsis, or, you know, I did a lot of work in South America. They were very good negotiations because it was pretty much like, what are your needs, desires, and frustrations? These are ours. How can we meet in the middle? Um, so, but one of the best stories was being able to, um, you know, <laughs> outwit Burton. And that was with one of Kier's contracts. It was, this is one of my favorite all-time stories in the world. And, and this goes to back to the point of ego where I was, negotiating contract with the then marketing director. And I had done my homework of how much Kier had earned, you know, in, um, in incentives. And I went to Burton, I said, pay him, you know, pay him this amount of money. It was, you know, a six figure amount. And they laughed at me and they're like, he is, there's no way he's worth that. Like, there's just no way he's worth that. And I'm like, but he made that much money last year. You know, like I tried to show them, but again, they weren't having it. And so, I knew, like, I knew that, like, I had started seeing here how good he was on television. So then I brought him to, like, um, a hosting coach in L.A. And at the time, 54321 had launched and, like, Fuel TV, you know, that all spawned. And so I became really good friends with all those guys and realized that they needed content ideas. So Burton was so focused at the time, you know, on Kier not being worth an amount of money and they so I designed his incentive package, you know, saying, all right, you pay him X amount of dollars for every second he's on television. And I just pretended like I lost the negotiation, you know, and was like, yeah, you're the big man. You're a genius. So they, Good so, on you. So they thought they'd won. They totally thought they won. And then I turned around and I went and produced 25 segments on Fuel TV and they ended up having to pay Kier like over a million dollars. And, um, Oh yeah. That's where the incentive cap came in was after that one. That's so brilliant. I, I apologize to all you athletes that have an incentive cap, but that's where it came from. That sounds like a really good example as well is because one of the things you said early on was one of your joys is helping athletes develop what, cause there's, you know, there's one thing getting paid mm-hmm. and there's one and as an athlete, and obviously every athlete wants to get paid, right. but, to actually have a nourishing career is is very different, isn't it? So it's, it sounds Absolutely. like part of your job and the part that you particularly enjoyed and still enjoy, I imagine, was was that part. Like, okay, yeah, the money will come, but how do we do it? And how do we do it in a way that benefits you, you know, spiritually as well as financially? Exactly. Um, and how, so how did you, can you give me some examples of like how, how you, that, that you just gave me a brilliant one you know, with care. Sure. 
but you know you've you mentioned danny you mentioned amk you've mentioned kevin you know and like that that was what was really notable about their careers like yeah they were great snowboarders yeah they were but they they all had very distinct personas and they all had very distinct paths through the industry which you could really recognize which really set them apart from other other riders basically yeah i'm really proud of that like i knew that you know back in the day like you know, the family, like Steve Astovan and Surf, like that group, they were signing everybody, everybody. And I was like, how the hell are you going to service all these people? How do you choose how to pitch them for deals? And so I got it. I never wanted a big, to build a big company. I always wanted a boutique agency. And I realized early on that it was, you know, yeah, you could be good at your sport, but what else? Like what makes you talk aboutable? So I looked at athletes, you know, I tried to look at athletes where it was like, okay, so you're, you're good at your sport. Um, what kind of entertainment project can I build with you? What kind of event property can I build with you? What kind of entrepreneurial endeavor could we do together? And I felt that I've always felt that you have to be the best person in order to be the best professional. And I signed these kids so young that I knew that they were, here's the thing. We all went to high school and then many of us went to college, right? So you take action sports athletes that get plucked out of being like teens pretty much, right? We're lucky if they finish like high school. Then their skill sets that are developed during that time are, let me tell you what color I want on my jacket or on my boot, right? And then here's heavy six figures or whatever the number is. Go travel the the world. And where's the free bar? (laughs) Exactly. Where's the bar? Where are the drugs, right? Because let's just be real about this. And then all of a sudden, if they're lucky, like they have a longer career over 10 years and they make money and they don't have parents that steal it or they don't blow it or they get injured and they're cut and then they've missed out on high school and they missed out yeah. on college. And you got a 20 something kid that was the shit that got their ego fed by, you know, being the shit now has $2 to rub together and zero freaking life skills and work yeah. skills. And they're sitting there and we're, we see it all the time where they are deer in headlights and their self-esteem plummets. And so I really took it as a responsibility to help cultivate them as a person and try to expose them to as much as I could in that time that I worked with them. So they had something more than when they exited, you know, Mosaic. Not everyone achieved that. And I will be dead honest about that. But my my core group did. And... um you know, there's a lot of variables that come in that play into that. But um, that was very important to me. I, I didn't I didn't see them as disposable when I when Jeffy died, when Jeffy Anderson died, he was, you know, 22 years old, 23 years old. And I sat there stunned with he's replaceable. He's not replaceable to his mother. He's not replaceable to his brother. He wasn't replaceable to me and to the people who loved him the most. But the next riders come and go. So I felt this crazy ass responsibility to these kids and their families to be like, I got to make sure you're okay. Like, not just that you're going to get big contracts, but that you're really going to be okay when this is all said and done. Yeah, because the funny thing about action sports then as well, they just didn't earn enough money to get away with it, did they? Because if you're like a footballer or like a basketball player or whatever you can basically retire at the end of it if it's done right it doesn't really matter like i mean it matters i'm i'm not trying to downplay it like course, emotionally matters matter, but you know what i'm saying like financially yeah. but that just wasn't the case with action sports like you know you were going to be and and it was it was brutal i mean i remember 
I remember Mickey Albin getting cut and he was like 26, you know, and everyone was like, what the fuck? You know, it's Mickey Albin, you know, I remember like that. And that was when, you know, somebody came in at Burton, probably won't mention him, but, um, (laughs) uh, and, and just, you know, just brought his guys in, you know, and I, I, you know, and I remember being like, fucking hell, like, yeah. And that was that for him, you know, and he was a legend and no, no thought, no care from the brands, just like, all right, cheers, see you later. And that's the game and it's brutal and we all know that. Yep. But mm-hmm. but action sports yep. at that point was particularly lined up to kind of basically not equip kids in the late 20s and 30s that had those opportunities for, for life, really, you know. No, no. And, and, you know, they hide behind, oh, they're independent contractors. They're not employees. We don't have a union for these guys. There's no health care. Like, you know, Burton was interesting at the time because they did have life insurance policies on Craig and, and, and Jeffy. So, you know, those things kind of worked out a little bit, but for the majority of these kids don't. And then, you know, some families or parents are amazing that I work with and some were a nightmare. And protecting the kids, you know, I always went back to it that I work for your child. I don't work for you. So um, there were hard, there were hard conversations and, you know, blowouts, really. Um, And, you know, I like one thing I I will always say some things I did really right. And some things I really, really screwed up on. But athletes were, you know, their health and happiness was was always, always number one to me. And what about your sort of career path as well i'm going to mention cersei because i've I've done a couple sure. of episodes with cersei and yep. you know she's a mutual friend of both of ours and um yep like the first episode i did with her like hearing the shit she got basically as a woman in the game was was <laughs> yeah. quite horrifying mm-hmm. i get you know, so i guess that's the question really like yeah. I, i'm imagining mid to late 90s early 2000s as a woman who was, you know, what you've just said, which w- would have been very unpopular <laughs> in <Yeah>. the industry. <laughs> Let's just put it that way. Yeah. Um, and, that, and that's a combustible scenario, mm-hmm. which which mm-hmm. leads to you getting a lot of shit, I would imagine. All so time, is that yeah. is that a good yeah. summary? Yeah, people were cruel. I mean, people were cruel. I mean, I, I it's the amount of shit, you know, they don't say it to your face, right? Like... They, they're, they're chuckling behind your back. But I think that was, you know, there, there's people, there's so many people, right? Like, you, you know, you just kind of chuckle at it now. Um, at the time, some of the things were pretty hurtful. But I think it's not, it wasn't easy. There wasn't one easy thing about what I did. Not owning the company, not re- building it, not rebuilding it after athletes died and got injured. Like, I rebuilt it two or three times. Um and the being left out, you know, I was always excluded. Like I always kind of made the joke that like there wasn't a strip club or a golf game or a surf that I wouldn't go, you know, wouldn't force my way into um, because they would always try to not include you. Um, you know, even up until the end, there was bullshit going on. And I was like, Jesus, I've been doing this long enough. Like, can you just shut up and step aside and let me do good work? Yeah. Um, you know, it, it gets old, especially like I said, especially because you would step outside of this bubble and you would go do work. Like I would be working in South America with massive amount of deals, like for my surfer, Sophia, and you would do real business, right. And be respected for it. And then you step back in this little 
effing bubble of action sports and deal with these idiots. And you're just like, oh my God, you know? Um, again, I hold my cards always for the shit that I did and said that I regret, but I would like to point out to all those men to own their shit because God knows they would never, you know? But whatever, who cares about them? So um, it was tough, but like I said, it, you have to turn that challenge into a superpower. And that was when you, you have to play into understanding their psyche and what was really important to them and their egos. Um, and I was so lucky. I was so lucky that I had athletes that just stood by me and didn't listen to them. I know they heard them at times and I'm sure they questioned, but they were loyal. And, um, you know, I'm very grateful for that. So when you made the sale, yeah, if we can look at that point, sure. How, and we've, We've made the we've made the connection between your self esteem and the work, mm -hmm. you know, and you know your mental health story that you that you've told us, and and how all this was intertwined, and this led to this decision, and it led to this life changing decision that you made. Basically, yes. Was it was it difficult? Did you feel in in the sense that you felt like you were you were also selling a bit of your identity because you'd done this oh. for so long and you'd and you'd like you know you'd really like planted the flag by this as you've described like this is who I am yeah. this is how I'm going to do this to actually yeah. make that you know you mentioned earlier that you'd been offered it and your ego didn't let you I think you said mm -hmm. yeah. um, and that 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 sounded to me like that was an identity thing that sounded to me like 100%. well I can't I can't do this because if I if I if I don't do this then I'm I'm nobody yeah yeah. A hundred percent. Yeah. I'll, I, there's a photo I took the day that I was leaving my office mosaic and, um, it's a reflection of me just taking a picture of the door after I locked it behind me. And I remember being like, you know, kind of that moment, like, who am I if I'm not Sue Izzo with mosaic and you know, that whole first year of firsts of I'm not going to X games. I'm not going here. I'm not, you know, it was, it was, it was weird. It was hard. Um, but again, that challenge of me exploring what brings me joy. And when I was in treatment um, in Tennessee, there was an equine therapy program there. And it was my first time I was introduced to horses, ever been around them. And I remember, you know, when I sold Mosaic and I wasn't going to work anymore, um, sitting down and being like, what brings me happiness? And I remembered this feeling of like being around horses. And I'm like, I'm going to go find horses. And I found this horse rescue here in Rancho Santa Fe and threw myself into it, not knowing anything about horses and like shoveling shit and <laughs> like petting horses and getting yelled at by the owner. What like saved me. And I think why, because it goes back to what I said about making the bed is that as I was rediscovering joy and what made me happy, there were very beginning, middle and end um, tasks when you're working with horses um, that were started building my confidence and then giving myself that permission to feel joy and to be like letting go of an old identity and what I equated to self-worth and allowing like my value at the horse rescue, like start filling in some voids. Um, and then I was very fortunate to have my friends from Australia swoop in and be like, we want you to do this. And 
I literally got so thrown into that so quickly that it was almost not, I didn't have a chance to like think too much about my sports career and, and that. And I, I did, I have to say, I did shut the door and walk away. I did not do like, oh, let me go do this or let me get into that. I, I, I didn't. I just shut the door on, on it and I just walked away and just started a whole new life. And it sounds like now with the work that you're doing, uh, as a, you said, yeah. you're a business coach, but also you're doing the yes. work with Cersei. So yes, is, is it about this next stage? Is, it sounds like it's about parlaying these lessons for other people's benefit basically because yeah, yeah you've got and and taking these what very hard fought for lessons let's be honest you know like what you've yeah. described is, <laughs> is 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 a lot of challenges like a lot of personal challenges to overcome Absolutely. Um, and and here you are you've done it yes. you know like yeah. and uh, you know which is amazing um but is is the idea behind these new endeavors to to share the knowledge essentially? Hundred percent, yeah. I, I would say like my title is pretty much just like educator and sharer of knowledge and experiences. Um, yeah. So the the business coaching, like I said, that was just a super easy transition, and and I love it. I because I, I loved what I loved about you know building the athlete brands and like how different. De- um, Kevin was from Danny, from AMK to Sophia, to Josh Kerr, to Chippa, like, you know, everybody was so different. So that allowed me to be so creative every day with how we were going to create projects and, and position them. So that's what I love about my job now is that I work with, you know, physical therapists that, you know, do the sports medicine for X games. And then I work with a wealth manager and I work with, um, uh, non-gender specific clothing company. And then I work with a woman who does so coaches people through sober surgeries. So it's kind of like the athletes, like every day is different. Um, and I love that. And I love being people's biggest cheerleader. Like I see people's potential before they could ever see it. And I will champion them till the end of time. So I love that role. Um, and then with the sports management mastermind that Cersei and I created together, that was kind of me being ready to come back and say, all right, I, you know, I have 20 years here and I care and I know the best of sports and the worst of sports. And I want to prepare, you know, these young athletes and their families, uh, not only as they start getting, you know, pursuing sponsorship and agents and coaches and how to become an athlete that can build, you know, a lasting career, but also work with the brands and say, you know, let me come in and help you guys. And then, Really, I think the next initiative in this is going to be for helping athletes two years before they transition out. And, you know, I've been doing a lot of having a lot of conversations with the brands about how can I help come in and actually teach athletes. This is how you if you want to build a business, this is how you build a business or you want a mentorship program like this is what we're going to do for you. Like, I'm really passionate about people suffering less in life, right, than they need to and providing opportunity because I think that I know firsthand what it's like to have a fixed mindset of like, I need to know all the answers. I can't ask for help. I have to do it all on my own and helping people shift to that growth mindset and being comfortable and vulnerable and asking for help. So that's, that's a big thing for the sports management mastermind is, is growing this company to the point where we can really service 
young athletes and their families and then service athletes when they're ready to transition and really help, especially as you, you know, know, like from a mental strength and mental health standpoint, um, I don't want anyone, whether they're an athlete, whether they work in the industry or you're just Joe Schmo on the street, I don't want anyone to ever have to go through what I went through. Um, so if I can help make the road easier, then that's my goal. And it's a, a very obvious question, but I've never been afraid of those. Um, is that why you're so open about your story? Yeah. yeah, I hid it for so long. And then I finally was like, no more. And I, I, I it was part two, like releasing the power I felt that these invisible people had over me because I always felt that if they knew, you know, it would be a way for them to hurt me, or, you know? So, um, and then once I started speaking about it, and this was some years ago, you know, then all of a sudden that's when my phone started ringing and it was sue me too, me too, me too. And these were, you know, CEOs, executives, athletes. And every time that I heard of an athlete taking their life, whether, you know, they were retired or not, it just, it, it killed me a little bit, you know, because I, I survived. And so I am very passionate about making sure that people feel number one, that they're not alone because they're not. And number two, helping them provide the tools and resources, the baby steps to learn how to manage their mental health. And I always contribute the fact of like, um, you know, it's tools. You got to use your tools and some tools will work for you at some points of your life. And sometimes you need different tools, but you got to pick them up and you got to use them. Um, and there's people here to help you do that. Is So the this, the sports uh, management mastermind is a course, right? Yes. That people can do. Yeah. So it's a four week, um, it's a four week live class that Cirs and I do. It's 90 minutes long and we go through everything of how to build your athlete brand, what, what it entails, um, how to use social media to attract sponsors and kind of damage control too. Um, <laughs> also how to build relationships with the right people, what to say, what not to say, especially parents, um, and contract negotiations as well. Basics. Um, it's Cirs and I, you know, it's unfiltered and we had our first one in April and it was awesome. And I'm so proud of the athletes and the parents that joined us. Um, we also had people who were interested in becoming agents and work in the sports industry. So we'll be creating another class, you know, specifically for that, but it is live and it's via zoom. It's weekly. Um, and we'll be launching our next one at the end of October. Amazing. So yeah. I've got to ask you, because you've obviously got such an amazing perspective on the industry. Sure. So what are the challenges now? You know, if you're a kid mm -hmm. yeah. who, who's yeah. like, who's decent, you know, and he's thinking like, who's maybe listening to this and thinking, yeah, all right, I'm going to have a crack at this. Like, yeah. the, obviously in 20 years, it's just changed so much. So what, what, so do, you see, what do you see the main, sure. the main challenges are now compared to then? Yeah, I think, I mean, number one, like, obviously, like being good is just not enough. Um, I think what is so interesting to brands, and this is the conversation I have a lot of, is what are your interests, you know, outside of the sport? What makes you talk aboutable? Like, I think that that, you know, when you looked at like a Danny, it was like, you knew Danny was super into music, right? And, and now you see him as an activist. So it's like, I think showcasing your other interests. Um, the other thing, too, is that I think, communication, it, it's not what can a brand do for you, but it's also what can you do for the brand? So, you know, being the one to ask, like, how can I help? What can I do? What can I learn? How can I promote? 
Um, that's going to separate you from the pack, I think, in a big way. I do think there's a lot less deals out there. Um, so that's why standing out and having a strong brand and being a little bit of a hustler and not in a bad way, hustler, but just really taking time to cultivate the relationships, um, I think is very beneficial. And I think using your social media is a great way. You know, if you're into a brand, you know, use tag them like you of you using the product and why you love the product, you know, like, like it's, it's, I think you have to kind of use every single tool in your toolbox to, to get noticed and be consistent in doing it and be authentic in doing it. Don't manufacture something that you think that the brand's going to want. But like, if you're like, if you're a Volcom person, you're ride or die Volcom. You like, you ooze it, right? Like, so it's like, show that and tag them and using the product. And um, so I think that those are kind of the things that, that, that matter now more than ever. I would, I'm wondering actually if you'd be interested in, I'll probably cut this bit. Um, if you'd be interested in writing me a blog, actually, I do a newsletter every fortnight and every, every week, sorry. And every fortnight yeah. I, I get a blog from a guest and it's like five, it's, a, it's really short. It's like five things about a subject to their expertise. So sure, we could, we could use it to promote the course as well. Um, okay. Yeah. Anything you want. I'll always write for you. Anything you need. Yeah. That, that I think that could be really interesting. Yeah. Hey, this has been so great. Thank you. Oh, I've, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, no, it's been really great. I mean, I've got one, I've got one final question for you. Okay. Um, which is what, what does self-compassion mean for you now? Uh, what does self-compassion mean for me now? Um, oh gosh, it means that I am just, I'm really psyched on the person I am and the person I I'm giving space and allow to become every day, you know, and, um, just being like, wow, you know, three weeks ago, I didn't accomplish this or I never knew I could do that. And look at me, I'm doing it now. So it's, it's, it's rewarding myself for the baby steps and really highlighting, you know, how kind and compassionate can I be to others? And that's, that's my measuring stick now. So just being nice. I like being nice. So there you go. That was me and Sue Izzo, and I hope you enjoyed it. I found that conversation personally to be extremely cathartic myself, to be honest. And I've got to thank Sue for being so open and honest about her experiences. To find out more about what Sue's up to, follow her on Instagram at Sue Izzo and at Sports Management Mastermind. And while you're there, why not share this episode or any of my posts about it over at we look sideways which is where I am on Instagram I mean it'll take less than 10 seconds and is a really easy brilliant way of helping me get the word out there I mean if you really really want to support the podcast you could head to my website www.wearelookingsideways.com scan through the back catalogue buy some merch or even buy my book looking sideways volume one a visually sumptuous collaboration with my friend Owen Tozer which records our 2019 trip to California which is really a look at how Californian action sports culture has influenced the world and our lives. The book has been featured now in Hook, Wavelength, Carve, Beach Grit, The Telegraph, Metro, and was described by friend of the show, Chaz Smith, as a work of art. No, I'm not making that up. Anyway, you can find that by heading to my website and clicking the tab marked book. If you've not guessed, it's housekeeping corner time. And if you're still listening and then, and you haven't switched off, and the numbers do reveal that a large proportion of people do switch off as soon as the actual chat's over. 
then I salute you and I hope you'll join me in a rousing rendition of Thank Fuck They've Gone. Incidentally, on the subject of sharing the episodes, I've been doing some admittedly ramshackle research into this over the months in terms of which sideways community are the best at sharing episodes. It's niche, I'll grant you. And the conclusions are in. Now, some context to this. Unlike some of the other notable action sports podcasts in the world, if I can be so bold as to refer myself and my humble little podcast as notable, I'm really the only one to cover more than one discipline, I think. Maybe there's a couple more, but, you know, the bomb hole does snow, beach grit does surf, water people does, well, water people, downtime does mountain biking. You know, this actually as another aside, has an interesting effect on my audience as well. What I've worked out is that I've got a core audience, which is obviously growing all the time, who listen to every episode. If that's you and you listen now, there's a high likelihood it is. Then, you know, thanks. Then there's the floating voters, the ones who wait to see who the guest is and decide if they're going to listen. I mean, that's kind of how I listen to podcasts, to be honest. Then there are the people who are purely attracted by the guest and who are fairly often first-time listeners. So with all that in mind, I'm in somewhat of a unique position to have an opinion on this. And my conclusions after four years of basically begging people to share episodes on social media via the medium of this podcast are as follows. In first place, skateboarding. Probably no surprise there. In my experience, skateboarding is by far the most open and accessible of all the action sports cultures. Now, I know skate culture has its issues And I understand that historically, it hasn't exactly been the safest of spaces for gay people or indeed women, as any number of interviews I've conducted over the years will confirm. But I do think it's fair to say that skateboarding has made the most strides in this area. And I guess when I say I think skateboarding is the most open and accessible, I'm sort of talking about the local level, you know, turn up at a skate park and most people are pretty friendly and they're going to cheer you on whatever your ability level. And, you know, that follows through to whenever I do an episode with a skater because the skate community without fail shows up to support both the skater in question and the show itself, particularly the UK skate scene. It's very much appreciated and it's a testament to the camaraderie of that particular community. In second place, surfing, surprisingly enough. Why surprisingly? Well, because if you're going to use that turning up a spot analogy that I just used for skateboarding, then fairly obviously surfers are the biggest bell ends of the lot. I mean, we all know this, but in general, whenever I do an episode with a surfer, the community also rallies around, especially my friends in the surf media, such as Wavelength Carve, the aforementioned Beach Grit, Surfer's Path, etc. All of which leaves, I'm afraid to say, my beloved snowboarding in a very, very distant third. Yeah, snowboarders are in my little... Um, experience pretty shit at sharing my episodes who knows why who knows how these things work all i can say is that whenever i do an episode with snowboarders unless it's like travis or somebody the sharing tariff tends to be extremely low i've got no idea why i just thought it was interesting so i thought i'd mention it now obviously attempting to get more shares by essentially slagging off snowboarders for being shit at it is a pretty weird flex but what can i say this is a weird show maybe you've noticed And on that slightly confrontational bombshell, that's it for this week. All going well, tests and travel admin notwithstanding. By the time you hear this, I'll be on a boat in the Maldives surfing some really good waves. Let's hope so. I keep you posted. Nice one.